Welcome to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, a bi-weekly look at all things related to the growing elite clubs nationally, the ECNL. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. Now, here's your host for Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, former U.S. soccer press officer and longtime soccer broadcaster, Dean Linke. Today on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, Christian Labors, the president and CEO of the ECNL, visits with Ian Barker, the director of coaching education for United Soccer Coaches. Ian Barker actually used to coach Christian Labors, and Ian, like Christian, has a big, beautiful mind. It's a great discussion with Christian Labors and Ian Barker after this message. As the game continues to evolve in the United States, The ECNL remains the standard of excellence in youth soccer. The Elite Clubs National League has grown to include over 200 clubs and nearly 50,000 players across the country. With a robust competition platform for teams, educational resources for coaches and clubs, and unparalleled identification and development opportunities for players. Alongside its member clubs, collaborating to create a better future, the ECNL continues to raise the game every day. The ECNL is more than a league. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Once again, here's Dean. This is Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, where once again, my worlds collide as I'm so pleased to be joined by Kristen Lavers, of course, the president and CEO of the ECNL and my regular co-host on this show, and Ian Barker, the director of coaching education for United Soccer Coaches, who is routinely a guest, if not leading interviews on the United Soccer Coaches podcast. I've Got to know Ian really well in 2014 when he went to Europe, and I got to know him even better when he was a major host during the digital convention. It was a pleasure to work with him both times and a pleasure to have him on the show. Ian Barker, Director of Coaching Education for United Soccer Coaches. Welcome to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Thank you, Dean, and thank you, Christian ECNL, for inviting me. I uh, think we're, what are we, around about show 17, so I got in in the top 20, so I'm, I'm pretty pleased about that. <laughs> Well, and Ian, I understand, uh, you know, those two little notes that I had on how well I know you doesn't even come close to how well you and Christian know each other. So I'll let Christian start with that story and let you guys roll. First of all, we're, we're really happy to have you here, Ian. Ian was also at our uh, coaching symposium back in uh, San Diego a few years ago, did a couple of presentations over the days that we were there. But Ian and I go way back to uh, me as a young player through college. And then I got to say, I thank you to Ian for uh, being, you know, one of the first coaching mentors I, I had as a uh, young person thinking that coaching might be in my future. He was a big uh, help in that and a big mentor for me. And so uh, I think our relationship has continued to grow in a great way. And, and I always look to Ian for some good objective advice and uh, appreciate you being here, Ian. And thank you for everything you've done, not just for the game, but also for me personally. No problem at all. There's some stories we could tell. We'll see if we get there. Most people probably know what your position is now, but maybe give give a little background on, you know, you've been through D1, D3, now in coaching education, and that's seen you go all over the world. So maybe if you could give the uh, elevator speech in your in your background and, and what you currently do now at United Soccer Coaches. 
Sure. So came to the States in 87, right after graduating at my university in England. I'd taken a, an FA badge while I was a student. So I had a, a, an entry level badge with the English FA. But it wasn't until I came to the States as a 23 year old that I realized a couple of things. One, I had a bit of a vocation for coaching in general, but also you can make a living at it, which would not have really been the case for a person like me in, in Great Britain. So I was able to work at the University of Wisconsin which parlayed itself into a division one assistant position, which was really, really good experience, good and bad experience. You learn a lot over those eight years. Um, did a stint with Minnesota youth soccer and USYS for 10 years. And that state association was, was one of the more, at the time, one of the stronger, more informed ones. So I thought I'd only be going in for a semester and then go back to college coaching, but I ended up staying 10 years. And then during that time, I also moonlighted and then went full-time with a Division three college called McAllister on the men's side. And then the last nine years, I've been the Director of Coaching Education for the NSCAA, now United Soccer Coaches. Most of your listeners probably moonlight in the coaching education realm as DOCs or mentoring other club coaches. But um, my full-time gig is that, and my part-time gig is more working with Olympic development players clinics and, and other player support. I still have a few teams that I get to coach, but um, I'm definitely more at the coaching, on the coaching education side of the equation right now. So maybe I'll just dive into that. And how, what do you see as a big difference between being on the coaching education side and being in the actual coaching with players side? It's a good question because I think in the same way that good players do not necessarily make good coaches, I don't think necessarily good coaches make good coach educators. So I think you have to have an ability. I think the modern coach educator has to be quite self-aware of what their strengths and weaknesses are as a coach and as an educator. And we're not as prescriptive as we used to be in the coaching education realm where it was very sort of hierarchical. You must take this information and you must apply it back in your environment. I think all of us now are much more interested in the contextual nature of education. So there is no coaching cohort in terms of coaches coming to licensing or education as diverse as the US market. So even with ECNL, you have, in the event I did with you in San Diego, you have team coaches, maybe you have age group coordinators and you have DOCs. And then in the broader world, we have college coaches, we have some USL and WSL assistants or semi-pro coaches. So when you're sharing content, you really are, you're sharing it with best practices, and then you're asking those coaches to go away and intelligently and intentionally apply it in their environment. And I don't think it's for any of us to tell people what their environment is. I think they, we, we want them to be critical of their environment, but then understand it in their terms, not in some ivory covered tower. The American coach, if we were to speak generically, is sort of a, it's a popular punching bag, right? When any, anything doesn't go well for a national team, it's always a, an American coach problem or a youth coach problem. You've worked with thousands and thousands of coaches, as you said, across college youth, even pro and pro academies, I'm sure. It's hard to generalize to the general American coach, but what do you think are some strengths of the American coach or the American coaching education system? I would, first of all, I would say that I wouldn't apologize at all in any way for the quality of US coaches relative to peers in the rest of the world. And that isn't related to coaching education. It isn't related to US soccer or a youth group or college. Just in general, the American coach, soccer coach, 
Many of them have formal two or four year, at least educational backgrounds themselves. So they're typically quite well-educated. They've got some communication skills. They've got some knowledge acquisition skills. The American coach is pretty well-versed in the global game because we have great access to the global game, men's and women's high level all, all around. We have developing professional leagues, which give us role models and things like that. And if you take the country that I grew up in, the UK, most of our top elite managers are actually not English. Um, they're not even British. So because our teams don't always succeed at the international level, because people want to downplay the significance of MLS relative to the English Premier League or La Liga, which is, of course, nonsense to compare those two products. Um, I do think we've beat, beat ourselves up, but I think we should celebrate, you know, the fact that Jesse Marsh is now the head coach of one of the top two or three teams in the Bundesliga. Emma Hayes is assistant coach at Chelsea Women, who are going to have a fantastic year, whatever happens. Denise Reddy. Thank you. Is, is an American. So at the top level, uh, you know, Bob Bradley coached in the Premier League. I know it wasn't successful, but that's the top level. If you look all the way down at the grassroots or the youth competitive youth, elite competitive youth like ECNL, you've got coaches who are articulate, they're organized, they have a good grasp of technique and tactics, they have a good grasp of, of basic psychology and communication, they have better awareness of fitness protocols and the importance of rest and sleep and nutrition. So I, I do not feel embarrassed about the quality of American coaches and I think American coaches can travel the world and translate well into other coaching environments, because I think American coaches in general are a pretty intelligent bunch. And that would be coaches coming out of, of ethnic unaffiliated leagues, but representing and, and coaching the, the, the players that they have, as well as our much more traditional, you know, suburban type programs. I, I think the American coach is, is doing just fine. Our coaching education programs inspired primarily certainly at the federation level and our level by Northern Europe and Western Europe. But, you know, I know ECL has a relationship with La Liga. We do see influences from other parts of the world. This is borne out because FAs around the world are coming to America and looking at some of the educational programs we have in our universities and the educational programs that I run and Didier Chabron runs with the U.S. soccer. So I'm, I'm very bullish about, you know, championing the uh, American coach. Really interesting perspective. So if I flip it then and say in all the coach education and all the conversations you have, and let's now drill down to sort of youth, is there one common area that, that you think could use improvement or an area where you see coaches struggle in the youth realm? In the youth realm, the coaches, especially coaches at the level of ECNL, there's a lot of pressure from outside, right? Because the parents are indeed the customers and they have expectations, which is completely reasonable. So I think an American coach has a lot of pressure on them. And a lot of the pressure is, is competitively related, result-oriented. Of course, you've got the, the, the specter of college and the individual players being successful there too. But I think, I think most of my colleagues would agree we, we need to modernize our approach. We need, to, we need to go back to coaching technique more, and we need to modernize our approach to teaching technique to meet the needs of the, the slightly more modern player who's not going to be quite so drill-oriented is looking for more immediate gratification, is looking for more stimulus in technical repetition, technical um, execution. Because I think too many of our coaches, and this is not said 
as a direct criticism. It's certainly a criticism I would le level at myself if it was a direct criticism. But we, we were really quick to be able to spit out a group of numbers that add up to 11 and say, well, that's, you know, I play a 442 or I play a 1433 and we do this and we do that. But then sometimes it turns out our players can't actually technically execute. Now, we might not have, have, have taught them cognitively too and, and, and the sophistication of the ideas that we're putting across. But I do think technique is something that this country needs to find a way to re-energize as something sexy for a high-level coach or a perceived high-level coach to be teaching and not always dwelling in the more tactical end of the game. Interesting you say that because I, I just saw a study, and you may have seen it uh, about a week or two ago, that studied some top academies of pro first division clubs in England, Germany, Portugal, Spain, I believe, about how much time they spent in technique without decision-making versus decision-making activities. And it, it, ran, it was very, a range, and this was, I think, U12 to U16, somewhere between 15 to 40%, and it varied country by country, and they didn't break it down by age group. But I think to your comment on the discussion between technique and decision-making and sort of coaching seems to go back and forth in these waves of what's trendy and what's what people talk about as the newest version of the gospel. How do you kind of see through those waves of, you know, at the Federation level, you have first it's the German, then it's the Belgian, and then it's, you know, whatever flavor. And then you have within this, it's decision-making, it's technique, and it's, you know, whatever it may be, whatever's popular and whatever people are screaming the loudest, how do you cut through that to say, well, really there, it's a balance and it's an art, but where, where do you draw those lines? The sort of the story of the emperor's new clothes, right? Sometimes the emperor is naked and we need to acknowledge that. And we need to sort of come back to, come back to some, some standard principles. So whatever the influence is that we're getting from, from other countries um, or internally, does it really look critically at the product that we're seeking to influence? So I don't think any of us would disagree that all of the products we have out there can be improved, but they're not necessarily improved by mapping a model that let's say works in the favelas of Brazil onto Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, right? Any more than you have a country which is two, 300 kilometers across and you take the influences from those and then you try to impose them on a country which has six time zones because Hawaii is a long way away from Rochester, New York. So if you are an expert, but you are not able to understand the environment and the basic premise that you've, you know, the, the premise of the challenge that you've been set up, I don't think you, you can be effective. Again, the first thing I would look at is making sure we understand what our challenge is, identifying in some sort of glorified SWOT analysis what our challenge is. I would also say that most, many of your coaches in ECNL are quite experienced, so they've probably seen this sort of full circle of the wheel. I do think it's important to try to avoid the words never and always in our approach to the game outside of player safety and well-being, right? So occasionally command style coaching, telling the athlete what we need them to do, technically or tactically, I think is perfectly okay. Occasionally, and probably more often, we're gonna engage in some sort of questioning, some guided discovery. But, you know, I want you to stand here at a corner kick. It's not a negotiable, that's where I want you to stand. We can review it later, but that's command style coaching, stand on the near post. When it comes to certain techniques, I'm gonna struggle if, 
I want to shoot from 25 yards if it's not going to be an in-step drive in some capacity, right? And so the decision-making part, if we equip the player with technical ability, we can actually say to the player, you know, what technique are you going to apply from your bag of techniques? So you can decide on what technique and we can discuss that. So we can have these, you can have intelligent discussions, but Polisic is doing fantastically for Chelsea. I think he probably, I could argue he's in their best 11. I hope he plays in the Champions League. And his technical ability is exceptional, even when you look at him relative to the Chelsea squad. Do we, are we developing enough young male players like that? Our women players are certainly technically ahead in terms of world-class soccer, but the gap has, has shortened. And we also rely on great organization, great tactics, great coaching, great preparation. But I think, um, I really do believe that the elevation spot for, for US soccer or the American soccer player is in a greater willingness on the part of coaches and athletes to engage in technical execution. So we had a philosophical discussion a few years ago. I don't know if you remember about what, what percentage of a player's potential is really impacted by coaching. You know, when you look at athleticism, you look at culture, you look at family or family order, you look at all sorts of other factors. We don't need to rehash that necessarily. That might be a hot button of uh, the impact of coaching. But when you look at a successful youth coach, and obviously the first piece is health and safety and positive experience, what else would you use to measure a successful youth coach? Because as you know, too many people just look at wins and losses and we can always sit here and, and I always say the next youth national champions coming out of either New York, SoCal, or Texas generally. And there's a demographic reason for that. How do you measure successful youth coaches? I would say that players are products of their environment. Um, that could be parenting. So there's a lot of good players from Brazil that come out of favelas that aren't coached per se, at least until they get into one of the Brazilian professional clubs. So so coaching in our environment, in the American, for the American player, formal coaching is part of that environment. That's just a fixed sum in the same way it's part of the fixed environment for a Dutch player or an English player in one of the uh, academies with be it men's or women. Coaching is part of that reality. Our coaches, hopefully they get trained, they get educated, so they're not Svengali's or gurus, but they're part of something a little bit bigger than themselves. They're willing to take in input, input. I think longevity with exposure to an athlete will typically support an athlete. So I like two-year cycles for coaches with players. If the coach is decent, the player is open-minded. I think two to three years is a really good time for a youth player. So I like to see coaches either focus on an age group or be prepared to give up their group after a couple of years. I think that's appropriate. That's my current belief. And more than anything, if the players learn to trust the coach, they trust the coach's technical, tactical abilities. They trust them as a, as a coaching technician, if you will. But they trust, the players become to trust that the coach has their best interest, that the coach is sensitive to different inputs and challenges the individual and the group is having, be it pandemic-related or academic-related or college pressure or parental issues. I think, I mean, I think you can remember as an athlete, um, coaches, you probably enjoyed working with the youth level, one of which of course was me, but it definitely, I definitely think trust is an important part of the coaching player relationship. And I think sometimes coaches are too busy, indeed trying to win games or 
help the kid pursue a college scholarship or teach some evolved tactics that they've read a book about or they've watched on television. And they, they forget about creating the, the trust relationship with the athlete at a, at a level above and beyond X's and O's, but, but something a little bit more holistic. So trust, I think that's really interesting you said that because ultimately, especially when you're delivering any sort of critical feedback, the first thing the athlete has to believe is that, hey, the coach has my best interest in mind and the coach's idea is something that I should try. Because if they don't, if they don't trust the coach's intent or the coach's content, then they never improve because they're constantly stuck in disbelieving what they're being asked to do. So how do you build trust as a coach? Well, obviously, you you've, you form respect for the athlete. You don't ask them to do something that they can't do yet. I, I, I've been dying to tell this story to somebody other than my wife, but I, my wife and I were playing pickleball the other day, which is a reflection of my current athletic ability. And I was watching Little League Baseball. Uh, it was training. And the kids barely could throw a ball. They really couldn't throw a ball. And they knew that it was to run around one way, but some of them would occasionally run around the other way. And the father's yelling, hit the cutoff, man. And then when the kid apparently didn't hit the cutoff man was, you know, what are you doing? So the father was applying his understanding of what Royals baseball does to this group of seven, eight year olds who literally could not throw the ball. So I'm not sure the seven or eight year olds could probably articulate that they think the coach is foolish, but you've already, you've just asked me to do something I don't understand and I physically can't do. How does that even make sense? So I, I do think part of that, is each is coaches knowing the ind individual collective and big collective abilities of their players, setting realistic goals, but setting challenging goals. So it's this, this notion of flow, right? You find a goal which is or an objective or a challenge, not so, not so difficult, it creates significant frustration and misery, but not so attainable that the kids are looking around going, the coach isn't setting me enough challenge. That's, you know, I know that's sort of cute and sounds, sounds obvious, but I don't think enough of us do it. I think too often the kids go to our training sessions and it's a little bit ho-hum. And I think our kids need to come away from the training sessions either, wow, that was 75 minutes and I, I, wanna, I wanna train again, or a little bit pissed off that it was hard work and kind of tough and it wasn't super engaging, but I really felt like I got something out of it, right? So to some extent, we as coaches, we have to sell what we're doing. If I was to put it, put it to your colleague, your coaches on the call, we all love to win 5-0, right? It's, it's great to have a 5-0 victory. You, you know, 10 minutes in, you're going to win 5-0. You sit back, you enjoy it. However, the most enjoyable games for most of us are the games we win 1-0 or lose 1-0 or they're a draw because it's a competitive battle. I'm constantly working. My kids are constantly working. So I think, I think that part of that establishing that trust is giving kids, putting kids in competitive environments where they feel that you are not overtaxing them constantly or underwhelming them constantly. You're trying to find that pitch which says to them, there's a little bit more to attain each time we go out. We are indeed getting smarter, spending time with Ian Barker, the Director <laughs> of Coaching Education for United Soccer Coaches, who is visiting with an old friend, Christian Labors, the president and CEO of the ECNL. We'll take a break and be back with more Ian Barker on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. 
Nike is a proud sponsor of ECNL Girls. Nothing can stop what we can do together to bring positive change to our communities. You can't stop sport because hashtag you can't stop our voices. Follow Nike on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Soccer.com is proud to partner with the ECNL to support the continued development of soccer in the U.S. at the highest levels. We've been delivering quality soccer equipment and apparel to players, fans, and coaches since 1984. Living and breathing the beautiful game ourselves, our goal at Soccer.com is to inspire you to play better, cheer louder, and have more fun. Visit Soccer.com today to check out our unmatched selection of gear, expert advice, and stories of greatness at every level of the game. Welcome back to segment two, Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Christian Labors, president and CEO of the ECNL, visiting with Ian Barker, the director of coaching education for United Soccer Coaches. Ian, when you look at the changes of the game now over the last 20 years, or your career has gone longer than that, where do you see it has changed most? Obviously, there's been significant change to the professional level, but whether it's college or whether it's youth, where do you see that today's players or today's atmosphere is just very different than, than when you began coaching? The resources available to players at every level, at the, at the most humble grassroots level, all the way through into the college and now the pros. Obviously, the American player, in line with players around most of the sort of first world of soccer, if you will, the, the facilities, the equipment, some of the quality of the coaching, the ability to find, um, certainly for the American player, better role models, um, better examples of what success looks like competitively. As you know, my days of coaching camps in the US, literally that the young students would have, the young uh, campers would have, you know, Michael Jordan shirts on. And now they've got shirts from MLS and NWSL and top players of our US women's national team and our US men's national team or stars from around the world. So the, the, the American player particularly is more part of the global game than he or she would have been 25 years ago. I do think though, and I mentioned it in the first segment, there's a cyclical nature to what we do. So I would recommend to all of your colleagues to get themselves a copy of Jonathan Wilson's um, Inverting the Pyramid book and just have it on your bookshelf, especially if you're a coach in ECNL or a DOC running a club who really likes formations and systems, and you're inspired by what Guardiola's doing or what Emma Hayes is doing or what Vladko is doing or what um, Greg is doing. I, I would have that book because what it, what it tells you is that some of these ideas of multiple lines in a, in a formation, um, breaking the lines on passes, different forms of set plays, different forms of, of pressing high, pressing in the mid block, pressing low, that's not new. Right, it, it was it was there a hundred years ago, probably not as well articulated, um, probably not as well shared on a global basis. But everybody wants to sort of, too many people, not everybody, too many people want to have the the Christian Labor's copyright way to play soccer, or the Ian Barker copyright copyright way to play soccer. I would even say this, with with all due respect, most of your clubs have a clearly defined style, and that would be great, and they should celebrate that clearly defined style, but they didn't invent it. I really struggle to think there are too many places in the game where we're inventing new things. We have better research, so our academics, our colleagues in academia are finding out you know, more, more information about concussion awareness, 
more information about the importance of sleep, more information about the importance of rest between games, even though we've continued to play tournaments, which have four or five games in a weekend. Um, so that, that we're pushing the boundaries there, but I do think that the basic principles of the game are somewhat immutable. So don't think you're reinventing the wheel. Just go and find out who, who, who did a good job with it in previous iterations. So are you, are you suggesting that WM is uh, making its way back into tactical shape? You know, at some point I have to bring up 1966 World Cup, right? So, you know, I think right now, this is a personal belief when we're talking about formations and systems with American coaches, coaching the ECNL, it's probably you've got a goalie that I'm figuring you've all got one of those and you're going to play three across the back or four. And if you play three, then you decide whether the, the two wide are wing backs or, or wing halves or wing forwards. But at the end of the day, and this is certainly borne out by, by what I watch the most, which is Premier League, English Premier League, is it's three in the back or four in the back and everything else in front of it is, is you know, is any, anybody's personal flavor. So like, if, you've got, if you've got good players who are technically competent and they commit to the, 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 the collective goal, Talent is what will get you where you need to get to. So you do have to collect talent. You do have to be a recruiter, absolutely, in, in, even in youth sports um, and certainly in college and the pros. But if you can't influence all of the players that you can go out and acquire, then make them better, right? So I think we have to be careful sometimes. And this is why I like the two or three-year cycles with a coach and a player. Because, you know, I know you've had experience of this, Christian. I've certainly had experience of this in college and with other programs. The kid that comes into you sometimes is a little bit of a lesser light, but buys in and trusts you, ends up being a much more consistent 80-minute, 90-minute performer for you than maybe a kid that you, you saw at a showcase, you brought across from your club, you schmoozed the parent, and at the end of the day, they're not committed to you, they're not, they don't trust you. So the, the, the bright, shiny object is, is fine, but sometimes the, the less shiny object that you take a couple of, of years to sort of work with and develop will give you greater long-term long -term success or maybe you get to appreciate that kid has gone on to a stronger program and then college and maybe the pros and you take responsibility for that i don't think i can take responsibility for a kid that i recruited for half an hour and then just stuck in the team i take credit as a recruiter i don't take credit as a coach you just danced around i think a lot of topics related to ego you know, uh -huh. in terms of ownership of ideas, ownership of player development paths. Where do you see this concept of ego in coaching? And I mean, obviously, the, some degree of ego is important and valuable, and another degree is really destructive. It's also helpful to develop confidence, but not overconfidence within players as well. So it's all kind of wrapped up. How do you look at the concept of ego when it comes to coaching and player development? There are people that I'm sure there's somebody out there. Um, we're not going to invite them to get into the chat room or email me or tweet me that think I'm an arrogant son of a son of a gun. And there are probably others that think I'm understated and under competitive, right? My personal self self belief is that I'm relatively understated, but I love to win football games, soccer games. And I've been fortunate um, through luck and judgment to work with college programs that, that won a lot. And I, I really like winning. But over time, I've become much more um, interested in the process of winning as opposed to the wins, because there are certainly earlier in my career, some of the wins were just, we had better talent 
and we just lined them up and sent them out. So I don't think there's anything wrong with with ego at all. I, I you know if there's some young coaches out there, they're kind of feeling their oats a little bit. They want to be more vocal. They want to puff their chest out. They want the best Nike or Adidas gear on their back or Capelli or whoever it is. That's their personality. And there's going to be other young people, same, same gender, same race, same educational background, whose personal style is to sit on the bench a bit more, sometimes to the annoyance of the players and parents who want a more animated coach. So to each their own. However... This is what I, I have come to believe very passionately. The successful coach, indeed the successful leader of any sort of group, has to maintain a balance between their will and belief, their ego, and then humility and self-awareness. So for me, it's a continual teeter-totter of balancing those off. If you are exclusively the, the voice, the ego, the upfront presence, I think you ultimately you turn around and people aren't following. By the same case, if you're always at the back, managing things, being the master manipulator, but never expressing a personality, never expressing overtly an opinion, sometimes they get ahead of you and you can't bring them back in. So my sort of vision of the coach is the center of the group. The, 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 it's a, I appreciate it's, yes, coach athlete-centered world. I don't want it to be a coach-centered world, but in as much as the coach, he or, he or herself, has to have that balance of the ego with the self-deprecating appreciation, the humility, the self-awareness. If, if the coach explains a disappointing result in an ECNL tournament or a competitive game in terms of what the athletes didn't do, what the ref did to cheat them, what the weather did, what the travel did, and at some point in that list of all the reasons why the result wasn't favorable, the coach doesn't take some ownership. That to me is, is the single most gross and worst expression of ego, right? The first thing would be, what could we have done? What could I have managed? And, and to the point of control the controllables, I've kind of shifted that thinking to manage the manageable. So it's not quite as stark as control the controllables. It's more manage the whole thing. So. Can I control the referee? No. Can I influence the referee? Hell yeah. And sometimes influencing the referee might be to berate them because I know the referee is, is, is going to respond to that. And other times it might be to put my arm around the referee at halftime and invite them in for a cup of coffee because it's snowing and we've got a clubhouse. I think that this notion of ego, again, comes back to self-awareness and intent. And when you look at managers, top managers, I think you can see how they modulate their expressions of ego, how they're loud when they need to be, they're contemplative when they need to be. And I'm talking now about, you know, top, top managers in, in world football. I think the ones that tend to be successful are the ones that are very intentional in their expression of ego. Through that, if I, if I was to pick out a thread, I, I hear a lot of discussion about sort of managing in the gray areas right? Where there's not clear answers. And I, I kind of think of tactics uh, at some level to that degree as well, because in some ways, a tactic is that this outcome is more likely if we play in this way in this area, as opposed to a clear answer. So when you look at a coach operating in the gray areas, how do you find that balance of, I think, as you said, it, the, the self-reflection with the ego, how can coaches develop that comfort in the gray area? How can coaches 
get some external support maybe because I think that's another thing that is missing a lot especially in the youth game is coaches having support from peers how do you create a network that allows you to be more comfort in the gray or to be more comfortable knowing that you don't always have to have the answer yeah I, li- I like the way you phrased the gray areas because it, it immediately came to my mind like the false nine right or the the number 10 player that finds a gap because some coaches they stand out for their consistency, but also to some extent their predictability, right? And I think as a coach, you wanna stand for something, you want to have an identity, but you also wanna be continually tweaking it and molding it and, and reflexive. I would say that, that coaching, as we all know, can be quite lonely at times, right? I, we're very blessed to be able to be coaches but sometimes you take the defeats pretty tough. Sometimes you say goodbye to your athletes and then you're left picking up the equipment. Uh, sometimes the parents turn their back on you, whatever that is. So I do think being a coach can be quite lonely sometimes. So networking, I think, is, is critical. The community that you formed with ECNL, certainly the director level when you have the event, the one I participate in San Diego, um, our convention, I think, is another opportunity for community and network. If you really want to understand how Ian Barker coaches or Christian Lapers coaches, you kind of need to be observing them and around them for more than a 90 minute game, right? You probably want to go to a couple of trainings. I was lucky enough for my convention session to train with the Sporting Kansas City kids, so excuse me, to observe them play and train four times before I got to coach them in a clinic. And I watched them working with their, with their coach Luis, and it was really interesting because I got a much better idea of him watching him for four sessions, games and, and training. And of course, I would have done if I had just gone and watched him on a competitive game. And I was on a podcast the other day and we got talking about community, right? So I'll give you a, a, um, a shout out here. You, probably, you may not remember, but a few years ago, we had a conversation and we, you and I agreed that coaching, and you used the word, is sort of agnostic in as much as it's one area where you represent a state cup champion in USYS. You're a ECNL top coach with a top club. Maybe you're a college coach coming to observe. If you can sit around the table, you can have an intelligent discussion about your coaching of college athletes and the stresses they're under as opposed to a youth boys or a youth girls team, competitive or not competitive. Put away the club badge, put away the, the parent organization badge and, and be, enter into more of the community of coaching And I think what you'll find is for coaches, you'll get a lot of people that want your knowledge as much as there's people that you're seeking to to gain from. And I I think when I think about a a successful coaching model, if you will, we're sitting around a round table as opposed to a lecture start, if you will. We are having fun with Ian Barker. That means time is flying. We're going to take one more break and come back with the Director of Coaching Education for United Soccer Coaches, Ian Barker, on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. From athletes just starting to turn heads to some of the best athletes to ever play their games, Gatorade shows that they are the proven fuel of the best. For the athletes who give everything, nothing beats Gatorade, the studied, tested, and proven fuel of the ECNL. ECNL Boys is partnering with Puma for the second year, driving sport forward with the leading products and the next generation of pros who wear them. Puma has proven themselves as the fastest sports brand in the world, the fastest innovation, the fastest players, and the fastest products in the game. They're the perfect partner to complement the speed and talent of our teams. 
In keeping with their mantra of forever faster, Puma introduces the world's fastest boot, the Ultra. The only boot engineered for speed, the Ultra combines a woven upper with a lightweight outsole for direct forward motion, speed, and acceleration. It's the best in the game, designed for the best players in the game. Welcome back to our final segment of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Kristen Labors, president and CEO of the ECNL, spending time with an old friend, Ian Barker, the director of coaching education for United Soccer Coaches. Christian, I turn it back to you for the stretch run. So Ian, you know, one of the things I think that we have a real challenge in in this country, and, and I think you would agree, but you can maybe put some other perspective comparing to other countries, is the coaching career path especially in youth soccer and the transition from a coach to a coordinator to a director. You know, and I use the story that if you look at a youth field and look to find coaches in their fifties, you're going to look for a long time. And there are people that, you know, have spent 20, 30 years in this profession. And at the time when they have so much knowledge and so much experience that they should be shaping a younger generation, they should be using that to help move the game forward. Instead, you have a lot of people that at that point leaving the game and selling real estate. And I think that's a tremendous problem, not only for those people and the time and the energy they've spent in a profession that they are then leaving, but it's also a problem in learning for the game because it tends to kind of make it look like a treadmill where you see the same problems continually present themselves because we don't learn from generation to generation. So how do you look at a career path for a coach and what can we do to create a better structure for longer, more successful careers for coaches? I taught um, high school during um, my master's program when I was in Great Britain. And there were some amazing teachers teaching in very tough environments who loved teaching and loved the students, but burnt out very quickly. Their, their love was almost too much. There were others that simply mailed it in and just survived the day to get to their pensions. And then there was a much smaller group in the middle that had this, what I consider this, this balance between self-awareness and humility and will and belief. I'm okay with a number of our colleagues burning out and leaving the sport because they're not, it's not their true vocation. I don't think any of us would, would recommend to any young people out there get into it for the money. Now, the rewards as you go through further through your career can mean a very meaningful career relative to some other opportunities. But it, the first reason you come into the game should not be exclusively for, the, for the, the vast amount of money you potentially could make. I think you have to have a love and desire for the game and a willingness to evolve with the game. I also think most of us would, should consider ourselves quite fortunate for the power authority, responsibility that people place in it. So if, if a group of parents and indeed the club give you 18 young people to shape and mold at least for eight two hour sessions over the course of a calendar week, yeah, you're having a bad day, right? Yeah, somebody, you lost a game or a parent was shitty to you. But at the end of the day, we have a tremendous, it's a tremendous privilege to be a coach and to have that opportunity. And I think it's one, that's respected in the game. But I think organizations, good clubs, need to be conscientious in providing support for their coaches above and beyond. I think educational opportunities are great. Social networking type opportunities, again, the event that you run with, with ECNL, 
Hopefully our convention does that. Coaching schools and coaching badges can do that. Coaches socials around the events and tournaments. I think you're giving coaches a space that keeps them connected to the game, but removes them from some of the overt pressures. There comes a point where we will continue to get the sugar packets out and love to talk about the X's and O's. Most of us do need to equip ourselves with other skills as we go through. So be that US Soccer's technical director program, which I believe is really tough to get into right now, be it some of the programs that we have in some of the uh, US universities right now. So the program we have with Delaware or the program that we have with um, Ohio. You know, I've been one skill that I really dislike having, but I've had to acquire it is, is effective budgeting and expense management because I'm the director of a program. And that's a skill set that's actually valued to me, valuable to me if I become geographically mobile because I've got the soccer pretty much locked down at least just because I've been around a long time. But I mean, I think you will agree, Christian, a lot of the co our colleagues that have made it a little bit further, they're effective communicators, right? They have effective management and organizational skills. So they have their protocols for returning emails and phone calls. Um, they have their protocols for disseminating information. They understand group dynamics. So as much as they talk to their strongest player, they're able to talk to their least experienced lower light player. And then from the club's perspective, and I think for those of us as leaders, I like a, a tit for two tat kind of social psychology model. So I'm going to let a young coach make a pretty profound mistake and I'm going to try to get them through it and set them up again. Sometimes we as more experienced people or leaders can be quite dismissive of the young people coming into the game and maybe a bit resentful, you know, subconsciously or a little bit too puritanical, but I think we can all remember times when we were young coaches in a much kinder time for making mistakes where we made mistakes. So I think we, we need to, we as leaders need to really identify where we want to invest our time and energies. So, you know, we've got to be good judges of character, but we've also got to be a little bit tolerant of what the, the, the new coach, the modern coach might look like. Because the coaches that I'm working with now will have better careers financially and opportunity-wise, the stronger ones than I ever did. And I've got to be comfortable and confident in that. Continuing that discussion sort of about professionalism, because... I do think that's an area that coaches want to see it as a profession. They need to act as professionals. They want, more importantly, parents to see it as a profession and not take the perspective of, well, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, and you're a youth coach, and that's cute. How do they create that profession and that professional atmosphere? Jay Howell made the comment to me a few years ago that the game in this country can eat up the best coaches because the best coaches just get more and more piled onto their plate to the point that they get stretched too thin, they get burned out, and what made them stand out and exceptional kind of gets taken away. And then I look at you know your career, and you started in the collegiate environment as an assistant in D1, you moved to D3, now you've moved into coaching education. You've evolved, and you've sort of created a path for yourself that's taken you more off the field now in some ways as far as working with players. But I don't think the Ian of today would want to be on the field 15 hours a week like the Ian or 20 hours a week at the Ian of 30 years ago. So how do coaches look at themselves where they are now, make it a, a profession and have a professional trajectory and where they want to go? Yeah, I, I really, as you can tell, I love the discussion. Um, 
I have great sympathy for a young coach now, maybe coaching in a good ECNL club because he or she probably has to have a working knowledge of how to use VO camera or whatever the latest, you know, capture is. Um, probably needs to have several different apps for communicating. And we've, we've got so involved in all this peripheral stuff around the programming that you almost wonder if the coach ever physically gets to talk to the player uh, because there are so many other responsibilities that are, that are reasonable expect or an expectation of the coach these days. And a lot of them are brought on by what was meant to be time-saving products in, in terms of technologies. It's interesting that when you look at the bench of our national teams, or you look at the bench of, of our pro teams and certainly foreign pro teams, there are these massive entourages of staff. That, that has not translated to the youth game, right? It, it might be one assistant parent coach if you're lucky sometimes. So I, what I would say to the young coach is you almost need to have, a, well, you certainly have to be much more aware of all of the resources available to you than, than my generation and, and your generation as well, Christian. However, at the end of the day, it is a human game, right? So if you're somebody, you can manipulate every app and computer, you can break down performance analysis, and you can spout off, you know, the, the latest player coming from here and all this, but the players don't care or they don't think you care about them or you can't sincerely identify a technical weakness in a player and say, I just think you need to shift the ball two inches to your left foot when you're serving out the back and you'll get, you'll get an extra 10 yards on the service. I think, again, the emperor's new clothes, the young coach, be good at the core. And I would actually be okay if the young coach said, you know what, I'm not gonna use the latest app for communication. I'm gonna to talk to every player at the end of training for two or three minutes, Whatever, however I manage that interaction and, and actually make it less scientific at times. You know, hopefully good clubs have sports conditioning experts and they have psychologists and all that, that kind of thing. I would like to see the, the soccer coach be first, first and foremost, a manager, a leader of a group of individuals on the basis of personality and intellect. And then build in all of the other stuff. So I think we can make, I think coaching could be easier for coaches, not more difficult. I could keep going forever on this and uh, I appreciate your time, but I'll, I'll ask one more question because I think it ties some of this up. And I go back to the, the importance of mentors. You were a mentor for me, still are in many ways, but I remember sitting uh, before doing camps and the night before you'd say, design a session on this topic. And I'd come in with a session the next morning at some ridiculous early hour and you'd say nope 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 yes why would you do that why would you do that and all, a lot of the feedback was simplify and stop making things so complicated mentorship is something I, I don't think there's enough importance placed on it in coaching I know when when I was in my legal career that was something that was very very important people that look out for you people that put opportunities when opportunities come up they put them in front of you and get you the ability to, to broaden experience people that kind of keep you uh, to one of your previous points, keep you from making fatal mistakes, but allow you to make mistakes. How can we do a better job? Where can we get mentors? How important is mentorship for you when you look at young coaches? What are ways in which somebody can find mentors or and maybe even, I hate to make it sound so formal, but to ask somebody to be a mentor, but how, how does a coach cultivate 
a, a network of mentors that can help them in their career long term. Yeah, um, everybody should read Jim Collins. So go and buy Jim Collins books and, and read about how Jim Collins works as, in terms of leadership. I now consider that I had mentors. I would say Jim Launder helped me, Fred Schmaltz helped me, Tim Carter helped me, John Leaney, uh, mainly on, obviously on the men's side of the game. But I, I did not use them intentionally as mentors and they did not, they weren't aware that they were mentors. I think in the era we're in now, and, and you're, you're a bit younger than me, I think there's more intentionality for young people to seek out people that can help them, but not in a cynical one mono direction way, but in a genuine like respect, I really want to know how this coach thinks. And, and I get lots of that in the coaching education programs because obviously the age gap gets wider for me each year. I think a young coach saying to somebody, maybe not, you know, can you be my mentor? But going up and saying, you know, is there a chance I can get a cup of coffee in 20 minutes of your time? And I'm only going to ask once every couple of months. So I do think, I do think it's beholden or it's incumbent upon the younger coaches to find those people. For those of us that fit into those roles, you've got to be really secure, right? And I think that's why many of us have survived around so long, because we are willing to share back. And that makes you attractive as a hire. It makes you as attractive as somebody wants to talk to. The word that I, I sort of came up with um, by luck and judgment is this um, is the word emancipation, which obviously is a very loaded word for, for US history and US culture. But one interpretation of emancipation is releasing potential. So you were quite gracious talking to me there about your recollections of us working camp. It wasn't give you a lesson plan and tell you to do it. It was the way you explained it, at least. We, we empowered you to go off and come up with some ideas and then we gave you feedback. Maybe it wasn't the most uh, friendly at times, but we gave you feedback. So we tried to release potential. And it's back to your question about how do we keep coaches in the game? The ones that have potential, they need to be nurtured and empowered. Um, if I spend my entire career trying to keep everybody one rung on the ladder below me, one, I don't think I'd have a very long career. And two, I think I'd be really shitty at my career. My job ultimately is a, as, as a steward of the game. Now, I'm not, I'm not Guardiola or Mourinho. Maybe Maybe they have that role with their assistants, but that's the professional game. I'm talking about American coaching, youth, college, coaching, education. Our responsibility is to identify potential and release it. That's what, that's what the job is of the, of the mentor and of the mentee, if that's the sort of terms we're using, he or she has to realize this is something that they want and they're going to get better if they associate themselves with people who have experience. Well, the word that comes to mind in this discussion, and I know this is one of your favorite words because I've heard it used by you a lot, is intentionality. If I was to sum up this discussion, it's about having intentionality and in what you do as a coach and where you look for growth and opportunity, how you conduct yourself as a coach, how you relate with players. And this has been a great discussion and really appreciate you being here and, and everything you've done for the game. And I'm sure there are are thousands of coaches across the country that look at what you've done for them that whether it's one moment at a coaching school or whether it's a, a lot of cups of coffee that have impacted them and when you look out at the players they've impacted Ian Barker's coaching tree is, is going to be broad and strong so thank you for what you've done on that 
you mentioned you, you know you're in the top 20 here of the ECNL podcast. I think I think you'll have to be a return guest because I think these topics are, and this is one of the things I think you're you're good at is this isn't talking about coaching from the X's and O's perspective, which really I think there's so much of, and so it's so easy to do that. But talking about things at a little level deeper, and I think that's important. And and if if we want to have better and better coaches that have longer careers, they need to go deeper in every way that you've said. So I want to thank you for being here and, and I'll give you the last word. The youngest coaches up to the most experienced guys in your programming that are ending their careers or towards the end of their careers. For me, it's, it's a 24 seven, 365 type responsibility. I'm not suggesting it has to be that for everybody, but I think you summed it up well, Christian, the word intention is just try to be increasingly more aware of what you're doing, why you're doing it, and the impact it has on the people that you're working with. And I think if, if all of our coaches can start getting into that protocol, I think they become better coaches. I think their players are happier, which means I think we'll develop better players and I think we'll develop a better game. So um, that, that notion of intentionality, I think is a really good way to sum it up. And with that, we will sum it up and wrap it up. A great visit with Ian Barker, the Director of Coaching Education with the United Soccer Coaches, going one-on-one with Christian Lavers, the President and CEO of the ECNL. Like Christian said, Ian Barker will be back as they could go on for hours and hours and all of it be informative. For Colin Thrash, our producer, I'm Dean Linke. We'll see you in two weeks for another edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. And if you have a suggestion for the show or a great idea for a guest, please email us at info at theecnl.com. Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast is an ECNL production. ECNL, more than a league.